Hi, I'm Paul, and this is ArcNext Sessions, episode number 10. Joining us in the studio this week is Christopher Hawthorne, the architecture critic for the LA Times. He'll be discussing his recent three-part series on immigration and architecture in Southern California. And uh, we'll also talk about his last 10 years as the architecture critic for one of the biggest newspapers in the country. I'm also really excited to introduce Brian, ArcNext Sessions resident lawyer to the podcast, Brian's going to be fielding legal questions pertaining to the architecture industry. So if you have a legal question, hit us up on Twitter with hashtag Archonnect Sessions or send us an email. You can even give us a call at 213-784-7421. You can leave a three-minute voicemail. And if we pick your question, you might even hear it on the air. So today, my co-hosts, as usual, are Amelia, Donna, and Ken. How are you guys doing? Good. 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 You guys excited about having a lawyer join us? Super excited. I, I'm very excited. It seems that uh, there's a lot of non-practicing architects, non-practicing attorneys on Archonnect. So it'd be helpful to get, get some guidance in that area. <laughs> we do have a lot of people just tossing out like, well, I once heard that this, you know, that you're going to lose your license if you do this. And a lot of it does seem very unauthoritative. Yeah. So it'll be nice to have an actual authority, a voice of authority. Yeah. Definitely. I think there's enough questions posed and answers posed in the last how, however many years to, uh, to keep our lawyer busy. Yeah. I mean, there's one, there's right now in the forums, there's a discussion on moonlighting. And that's just one of those things. A lot of firms have policies and a lot of people don't. And where it really interests me is the intersection between laws and ethics. I used to teach pro practice and I loved the ethics discussions, talking about the ethics of practice, because frequently there are things that um, are completely legal. But if you, as an ethical professional and practicing a member of your community, you might wonder if it really is the best in your best ethical decision to, to go a certain way with a job. So I'm actually really interested in the very fuzzy edges of the law where the ethics become much more personal. And there are books about ethics and architecture out there that are great. I've used one of them as a text um, in my class. So absolutely. So yeah, excited. I wouldn't be surprised if we if we learn that the law itself is pretty fuzzy. <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> yeah. And I'm excited to get also some perspective on all of these legal issues that we discuss regarding fair practice in terms of unpaid labor and how interns are hired and that kind of thing. I think that it's not specific only to architecture, but as repercussions throughout the entire workforce. But uh, architecture is endemic to all these things. So I'm super excited to get a lawyer on and get a, get some of that perspective. Definitely. I think the point that comes up a lot in architecture is copyright issues. Um, those are another, another mm, source of yeah. uh, clarification that I think is sorely needed. I think, you know, oftentimes ideas are taken and, you know, I think there's some gray area in that in that respect as well that's a really good that's a really good one yeah yeah be good to talk about yeah uh, wilkinson Iyer, i believe I, I i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing that correctly it was just in the news on our connect the other day i don't think they're actually claiming to sue the the designers but for the italian the milan expo coming up there's a, a project that very closely resembled their own and i one of the commenters made a comment about how architectural design cannot be copyrighted. So, but that's not true. <laughs> yeah, I, that's what I thought. And uh, we can confirm that pretty soon. Yeah. See how quickly it is to spread information and misinformation, especially right. considering <laughs> legal uh, precedents. So, so you guys ready to listen to the conversation? Yeah, let's do. Yeah. Let's hear Brian. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's go. I'm sitting in the downtown office of Dykema Gossett with Arconex Sessions, new resident attorney, Brian Newman. Brian, how are you doing? Doing great. Paul, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. So could you tell us a little bit about your background as a lawyer? Yeah, I've been practicing now about uh, 15 years. My specialty is actually trying cases in front of judges and uh, juries all over the country. I represent a pretty wide variety of clients, uh, large banks, mortgage companies, educational institutions like UCLA and USC, also uh, quite a bit of intellectual property work, copyrights, trademarks, patents, uh, trade secrets, and what I do is probably about 70% litigation trial work, 30% uh, transactional work, counseling, uh, giving employment advice, and also just uh, making sure people are uh, staying above board. Awesome. Well, as you may know, our website is filled with people posing legal questions and many architects playing lawyer and answering those questions. Historically, those answers haven't always been accurate, according to the limited knowledge of the law that I have. So your contribution here is uh, very valuable. So the first question 
that we've got that we'll be asking you today is about unpaid work. Is unpaid work ever legal? And if so, what are the circumstances that would make it legal? It's a great question, Paul. And I see this all the time with, with my clients. The, the answer, the short answer is it can be legal, but you have to be very, very careful. This is really a legal minefield. It's one of these areas, particularly here in California, where you may think you're doing it right. Uh, and if you're not doing it right, you can end up uh, paying a whole lot of money, either in a lawsuit or from a government agency who sues you based on your failure to, uh, to comply with the law. So uh, to get into the nuts and bolts here, unpaid labor. If you want to have an unpaid intern, you can have that under California and under federal law. But to do that, the intern must actually be affiliated with an educational institution, an accredited institution. So it can't just be you know, uh, some made-up school or some made-up uh, organization. It has to be actually like a UCLA or a SciArc or a FIDM in the design world, uh, something that's actually you know, a real educational uh, institution. And the intern actually needs to be getting credit for it. So the intern needs to be receiving you know, either formal school credit or at least enrolled in a program uh, that's being supervised by someone who's not uh, actually a member of the, the employer or a member of the, the company where the, uh, the individual is interning. So there has to be supervision. There has to be credit. The person cannot displace one of the regular employees at the employer. So it can't be a situation where the employer had an employee uh, and that person was let go to make way for an unpaid intern. It really has to be something where there's a program set up, say UCLA, for example, and uh, through that program, an uh, individual comes to work at your company, is getting credit, and is being supervised, not just by you, but also by uh, someone at the institution. So th th those are sort of the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, the main thing, again, is uh, that it's actually a real institution, that the person's getting credit, and an employee is not being displaced. And it has to have, another point, has to have, uh, as its underlying purpose, it has to have some sort of educational purpose. So if, if the intern is just coming in, for example, in uh, stacking boxes, or it's just coming in, washing windows, or sweeping the floor. Uh, it's probably not going to qualify as an educational purpose unless uh, you know the program or the course of study that person is involved in involves you know washing windows or stacking boxes. If, if they're enrolled in a program for something related, for example, to architecture, and they're coming in and they're just doing purely you know uh, manual labor, it's probably something where you're going to get run to a red flag if uh, somebody takes a look at it. So is there a limit to the number of unpaid interns that a company can have? No, no limit. A company can have as many uh, as, as they can find, as they can be supported under the law, if they can find uh, individuals who are actually enrolled in the course of study. And what would happen to, um, to an employer if the unpaid position did not fall under the, the laws defining what an unpaid internship is? Well, it's a great question. There, there's a couple of ways that, that the employer can get into trouble. Uh, the first is the actual intern or the person who thought you you had as your intern can actually turn around and, and sue you. And we've seen this happen more than once, uh, where someone the employer thinks is an intern uh, turns around and files either an administrative complaint or an actual lawsuit, uh, essentially for violation of uh, the state's minimum wage laws. So under, under California, the minimum wage here is $9 an hour. Other states have may have different minimum wages. The federal minimum wage, I believe, is $7.25 or $7.50 right now. So the claim would essentially be, uh, you called me an intern, but I was actually an employee, and you violated the state minimum wage law by not paying me the $9 an hour plus overtime plus other potential salary that I was entitled to by calling me an intern, improperly calling me an intern. So we've seen those cases. Those tend to be uh, not good cases for the employer, particularly if it's a situation where the intern can say, hey, you said this was you know, an intern program just to, just to avoid paying me. In that case, the employer can actually be liable, not just for the person's salary, but also for penalties, uh, attorney's fees, potentially what they call treble damages, treble meaning three times. So let's say the employee worked 100 hours during the course of a summer, for example, 100 hours, $9 an hour would be $900 times three, $2,700 plus penalties, plus attorney's fees. So it can get very expensive very fast. Uh, the, the worst case scenario, and we have seen this occasionally, is the employee could actually file, or the intern, the person you thought was an intern, could file what's called a class action lawsuit, where they're representing not only themselves, but a class of other people. So this, this would probably not happen unless it was a rather large company. We have seen it. 
uh, where the intern comes in and says, okay, not only was I improperly characterized as an intern, but there were 25 other people who were improperly characterized as an intern. And then the, the damage just multiply very, very quickly. Suddenly you have, you know, if there's a class of people, 25, 50, 100 people who are misclassified, now you can have potentially into the tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars, not to mention the bad publicity. So that's the first way this can come up, as if the, if the individual sues you. Now, interestingly, and a lot of people may not realize this, you may say, well, this intern would never sue me. This person likes me over a great relationship, and that may be true, but there's a second way you can get into trouble, and that's if a state agency, for example, in California, we have the Department of Labor Standards Enforcement, uh, the DLSE, can actually bring an administrative action against you. So if the DLSE gets wind of this, they can actually bring an action against you in the same way that an individual plaintiff could, and they can sue for the same thing. They can sue for unpaid wages, penalties, overtime, all those things. So the question might come up, how, how would the DLSE even find out about this? We've seen it happen. For example, if, if a company has uh, an employee, that employee is laid off and subsequently replaced with an intern or someone who the employer thinks is an intern, the disgruntled laid off employee will actually report them to the DLSE and say, hey, you know, I lost my job and so-and-so company has now replaced me with someone who they're calling an intern, but isn't an intern because they're not even a student. So the DLSE gets tipped off to this depending on how busy they are or depending on which individual you may contact there. If they have some time on their hands, uh, they may open up a complaint. And if it's a situation where they find out during the first phone call with you or during the first letter that this so-called intern is not even a student, you're going to be toast. You're going to have to pay some money. So what advice would you give to a disgruntled employee that feels that he's being taken advantage of in an unpaid position? What, what would... What, what would you advise to be the first step? Well, from the employee's point of view, from, from the employee's point of view, uh, if, you're not, if you're not an intern, in other words, if you're not receiving school credit, or even if you are receiving school credit, but the work that you're doing is not really in the, uh, in the spirit of what an intern is supposed to be doing, which is primarily educational, I think it's uh, a couple things are appropriate. You could talk to your employer and say, hey, you brought me on here as, as an intern. I'm really not an intern because I'm not getting credit for this. And so therefore I need to be paid, you know, at least the minimum wage of $9 an hour here in California. Or, you know, if the person otherwise likes the job and is comfortable not making money, they could at least say, you know, the type of work I'm doing here at this company is not consistent with uh, my course of study. So really, you know, essentially I'm being taken advantage of that this is not uh, an educational job. This is really just a manual labor job. Now, now to put this in context, people all the time you know, take unpaid jobs, sort of paying your dues, and are going to be afraid to complain or maybe not want to complain because they're hoping that this is going to lead to a full-time job. So I think as a, as a practical matter, most people probably are not going to complain because of fear that the employer is going to say, okay, you know, if you don't like it here, you're welcome to leave. But certainly if you're not getting credit or if you're not doing something that's primarily educational, you certainly would have a, a basis to complain. Uh, and then uh, finally, in addition to a lack of income. Are there any other disadvantages or lack of benefits or security that an unpaid position would put the employee? In? Yeah. I mean, as a, as a, a un, uh, unpaid intern, I mean, they're really not uh, entitled to any benefits per se. So it's really, and also, you know, you're still considered at will. You're not an employee, so you're not an at will employee, but you're still at will. So the employer can terminate you at any time. Uh, the employer does not have to pay you for any sick days or any vacation days. I mean, really, I mean, it's really considered, the law considers you a student. So in the same way that a student would not be entitled to compensation for going to class, an intern is not entitled to compensation or benefits for going to his internship job. Excellent. Thank you so much for, for this advice. Paul, it's great to be here. We're looking forward to the next episode with you. All right, me too. Okay, we're back. So you guys, it's been 10 episodes. Can you believe it? <laughs> it's gone so quickly. Time flies. It has. I mean, I was just talking to a friend the other day and he couldn't believe it that we were already up to episode number 10. Yeah, but we, we used to be doing it out of the uh, kitchenette in our office and we've come so far, right, Paul? <laughs> if only everybody could see. <laughs> it's like a large closet. That's what you need, right? For radio, that's what you need. Yeah. You know, I posted that picture back on our like second episode when we had to, I had to record at my office at work, not at home. And um, I posted a picture of my, all my packing blankets that I strung around the room to get some uh, sound deadening. So you guys need to need to take a picture of your closet. <laughs> yeah, we're all doing amateur acoustic architecture at this point. Exactly. There are specialists who do that, you know, <laughs> I mean, they, they would laugh at us. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I know. Maybe we should invite one to the podcast. We might have to one of these days. <laughs> Could do a live criticism of our space and tell us exactly what needs to change. Yeah. And then the number of how many dollars it would take to do that. Wait, but isn't that a little like requesting free work? <laughs> you know, come in here and take a look at this. Free advertising, really. It, I be, mean... it could be free advertising. That's a good way to, to spin it. That's you're thinking like a business person. <laughs> we'll have to consult with our lawyer first. <laughs> but yeah, we've come, like we've done, we've covered a lot of ground in 10 episodes. I still have very fond memories of our first talking with Leanne that was a great episode. We kind of got to hash out a lot of the um, initial twists and turns that come with organizing multiple people over multiple landlines to try to come in on the same conversation and all be recorded. <laughs> it's a fun process. And that, that episode was very controversial in the comments. Not, I mean, I wasn't expecting it to be so, but um, not everybody likes to talk about gender equality. They like to talk about dogs a lot, but not so much gender. <laughs> and, and they do not like to be compared to dogs. No, certainly well, not. Well, there's frequently a, um, you know, we're, we're talking about topics or trying, we're trying to pick topics that are hot in the forum or in the news section on the website right now. So frequently there are sort of dual conversations because then the, the conversation in the original posting can then um, lead to the podcast and then the comments can continue in the podcast. So if people are listening to the podcast and want to know if other people have comments, I would in encourage them to go to both places, both the podcast comment section and the section where the original news item or discussion topic was from. Yeah. This has happened a lot on Arconnect that, that we get a couple different conversations about the same thing going on in different places. So you have to have to dig around a little bit. Yeah. And we, we usually provide links to all of those, all of the articles that we talk about in each podcast in the podcast notes. So uh, in case anybody's looking for those original articles that we're referring to, you can always find them there. You know, the, the, um, what's been challenging, I don't know if it's just for me or if it's for all of you, um, I, having not done a podcast before, I think it's rather difficult and it's starting to feel, I've related this experience to what I've heard, um, football players and especially quarterbacks talk about that they, when they're first in the game, when they're first playing, um, the game is really fast and it, they don't really have a grasp of it. And then they get through doing and the constant practice of doing of their job, they, the game, they finally get to a point where the game is slowing down and they can see the field better. They can see players better. And for me, these past 10 weeks have been just me hanging in there and just keep doing it. And it's starting to slow down for me <laughs> where one of the comments that I've made is that my, sometimes my, uh, my mouth runs ahead of my brain and, and I'm saying things that, I, <laughs> that I, in hindsight, I would probably would not really say so in artfully um, that I would be a little bit more, be more present. And, and I think sometimes I get outside of myself and, and not really kind of present. So it, what this experience has been teaching me is to, Hang in there. It keeps getting better every week. <laughs> be in the moment. Yeah. yeah. Be, in, be in the moment. You're going to become a podcast athlete by the end of this. <laughs> That's right. I, I really enjoyed our conversation with Brian Libby from Portland. Um, I love that we could get someone who was right on the ground, you know, in a, in a, for a topic and who had a close personal interest in it. And I thought we had a really good conversation with him. And uh, then, Ken, your comments about, the NJIT dean ended up getting listened to a whole lot by a whole lot of people is yeah. what we heard today. So I would say, don't worry about no, your, no, uh, it, your, and I think the, just talk. I know, no, I think, you know, I, I reflect on that one as a, as a particularly weak part because I think for me, um, it does have some personal connection and there is a little bit of personal animus I feel towards. And I think and one of the things I don't think I conveyed very well, and I think I, I tried to do in, in uh, the comment, uh, there was a comment on on Arconnect about it. And one of the things that I, and I tried to clear it up a little bit, and again, I wasn't as artful as I would have liked to be, but my real criticism is not about the school, about the students or about the faculty. It's always been about my feeling and my sense of it. And again, I, it was placed in a time where, you know, 20 years ago, and it's entirely possible this dean has changed, but in my mind, reflecting on who he was and what I got to know about him throughout my connection to NJIT. And I didn't get my degree finally until 2002. So my connection to NJIT is still, it, it's not so foreign to me that I don't really have an experience with, uh, I still have some experience with it. I, and, and I just find it difficult to grasp how uh, an alumni association doesn't really have a, you know, that we don't have a problem with a dean running a particular school for such a long period of time. And I think on a lot of levels, my criticism was more about the dean and his duplicitousness regarding the school and what his, the, the language he talks about the school and the actual actions. I mean, NCARB just put out some very interesting information about the need for architects 
and, and he talks about the the time period that had already passed. So I thought, you know, the one things that I, and I think I'm doing a little bit better job of explaining it now, but I, I just don't, I don't trust someone who actually, who cites facts that are rather old and, and all of a sudden, you know, bam, 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 they have evidence to show actually contrary to what he said, it actually, the architecture has a real need for in this profession for more people to come into the profession, not uh, fewer people. So I, I just don't have a real strong sense of him. And, I, and again, I, like I said, I had tremendous number of professors there at the school who maybe the person I am today and the, and the way I think about architecture, it, it all came from that school. It didn't come from that dean. It came from the people that were there at that time. So, and it, the fact that a lot of people listen to it means a lot of people at NJIT listen to it because I was bashing him pretty hard. So, um, <laughs> well, I think, I, I mean, the, the sort of silver lining of, all the, of that is to me, it's a reminder of how, how close the studio environment is and how we all, even though people go to school all around the country, we all architects have this shared studio environment history. You know, we all know what it's like to be in an architecture school in that intensive pressure cooker of the studio space, trying to thrash out the, the ideas and, um, I love that we have that shared culture. So it obviously impacts our lives immensely. And I, I still have this romantic vision, perhaps, of the um, podcast being something that the students listen to while they're working in studio. You know, they're in there pumping, pumping their Revit or no, they're not using Revit, they're using Rhino. They're pumping the Rhino and uh, to get their design crits done. And, uh, and they're listening to us talk about hopefully some issues that impact them or that they think about. Yeah, absolutely. Have you guys thought about anything that you'd like to see in the podcast? You know, maybe something new to be introduced to the podcast that we haven't. You know, um, one of the things I'm really angling towards now, um, don't get me wrong, I love architecture. That's why I'm an architect. But I'm very much interested in talking to people outside the profession regarding space. So I'm trying to figure out how to talk to some, I have some connections with some postmodern dancers here in the Twin Cities. And a lot of the work that they do um, centers on architectural space. So I'm going to be tomorrow going to see a performance of a friend of mine. And one of the performers that uh, is working with her is, I don't know if anybody knows them um, outside of here. I'm sure they that in the dance community, postmodern dance community, I'm sure they're well, well connected and people know them. Uh, it's a group here called Hijack. And their work is stunning. It is it blows my mind. It's probably the most significant artistic experience I've had in the Twin Cities. When I think about art in the Twin Cities, I don't think about painting. I don't think about anything else. I just think about this postmodern dance group that is here. And I like what they do in, in space. And I really want to talk to them about that. So those are kinds of some things I'm interested in talking about. I love that idea. I mean, back when I started ArcNect, one of the biggest goals from the beginning was to introduce people from other fields, you know, and because I, at the time, you know, before the internet kind of brought everybody together, architecture felt very insular and there wasn't that much inspiration being taken, I felt, from outside of the industry. But, you know, I'd, I'd love to bring that back more into the podcast as well. So, I mean, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I particularly would like to include more occupancy interviews, just like random stuff recorded in the field to go out, get ideas from people who actually live or work in these spaces, in any space, architecturally relevant or undercovered completely. And try to just bring them in and then offer them up as a course of conversation. That's a great idea. I love that idea. Another thing, I, I know that we're running kind of tight on time today, but uh, another thing that I would love to do, I'd love to just totally rip off the idea from this podcast that I've been listening to a lot lately by Slate is uh, there's a podcast called Working. I don't know if you guys have yes. been listening to it. I know that Amelia has. It is such an amazing podcast. I mean, and they and they they started this podcast with an episode with Stephen Colbert that was just mind blowingly good. But it's it's a every episode they have a conversation with somebody from a different like that that just talks about what they do as a job. You know, on a, nice. a, a day in the life of fill in the blank, whatever that job is. I would love to do something like that on our podcast, just because there's so many different types of jobs within the architecture industry. Absolutely. You know, what's a day in the life of an unpaid intern? What's a day in the life of a landscape architect? What's the day in the life of an architecture dean? You know, I, I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, how diverse this industry is. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my career has been incredibly diverse. You know, I've, I'm, I'm a facilities director at this point, And previously I was doing theme restaurant interior fit outs. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's a very broad discipline. Yeah, I mean that's exactly. I mean it can it can change so much just uh, within one person's lifetime in their career. So, so speaking of theme restaurants and theme interiors, <laughs> 
you guys read this article about the um, steampunk high rise in New York that's going up? Of course. Absolutely. Yes. Seems like a lot of people have. <laughs> it's been a very uh, highly commented article this week. You know, I, I feel like it's actually a really interesting discussion. I think there's some different points of view coming in that are pretty good. Uh, Amelia, did you want to present this article? Yeah. So for those who aren't super familiar, there is a um, new property that is being advertised in New York City as being a confluence of like new and old New York. And the old New York they're kind of going for is this steampunk aesthetic. And the steampunk aesthetic, I'll do my best to um, summarize, is a pre-industrialization, mostly, I believe, English kind of culture or historical culture. So the aesthetic of steampunk has a lot to do with, as the name implies, steam-powered things. A lot of like mechanical imagery, rough wood and metal stuff. I mean, you can get really specific into how different architectures or costumes or different themes imagine the idea of steampunk. But for the case of this building, it was steampunk because, as far as I could tell, the renderings and the press photos of the interiors of the building were done in a way to suggest that the prime, the people that they were trying to attract to this building were steampunk, which is so strange <laughs> because also I think the the uh, properties are averaged around like a couple million, maybe one million yeah. to buy. So, you know, I don't know what a million dollars was. Adjusted to inflation um, from pre-industrialization <laughs> from the Victorian uh, of the Victorian era. Yeah, I don't think that they would be able to make their capacity if they actually stuck by that currency. But so the press photos that are accompanying this, this press release towards this new property all have these people dressed in like steampunk era garments, doing ste- apparent what are apparently steampunky things. One of uh, <laughs> what, which involves boxing and playing backgammon. You know, the little I know of steampunk culture, and it's it's loosely kind of connected to um, rivet head and industrial music culture in some ways, I think, because I, I always see those kinds of people around around the events I would go to music events. There's nothing steampunk about this, except for the guy with the tattoos, the beard and the boxing gloves. That's the most steampunk <laughs> thing I saw, you know, other than that first rendering where it looks like it's in a somewhere in Holland, you know, where, like canals in Holland. These are fetishized images of uh, someone's imagination of steampunk without really getting into what steampunk culture is. It's so cleansed of what steampunk is that it kind of reflects the interior. There's a, this is like almost like you're a dandy's like polished version of steampunk, like your mom and dad might use for steampunk. This is not it. Yeah. I mean, it struck me. I mean, I'm not a big follower of the steampunk aesthetic. I'm not that up on, but I mean, from what I know, it seemed like this was like kind of a marketing afterthought. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, how can we sell this? Like, let's make it steampunk. Definitely. It's a it's a developer version of steampunk, right? Yes. Just like the five points is now going to be a developer building that they throw the five points. You know, they'll have a logo that looks like the five points graffiti or something. So who's going to buy into that, though? Because anybody that's really into steampunk is not going to not going to be sold on on this image. And anyone who's in the steampunk doesn't have two million dollars in their back pocket to drop on a condo. I mean, this is not that culture. This culture is, again, it's a fringe culture that really kind of doesn't buy into this corporatist kind of idea of what their what their identity is. They're very much on the outside. They were like, it would be like designing a condo for furries or bronies. I mean, this is absurd (laughs) to the nth degree. I can't even... There isn't anything about this. There's no science. I mean, if you think about what steampunk culture is, America's introduction to steampunk, the broader cultural experience, just go to um, Wild Wild West, the the, the Will Smith version of, of <laughs> that is steampunk. That is steampunk. That yeah. was the closest approximation to what steampunk culture is. This doesn't even, even come close. So we, I guess I think we can all agree, even if we have different ideas of what steampunk actually means, we can all agree that this is not whatever that is. So then it becomes, how effective is this? We don't think it's very effective as a marketing tool, but it is quite effective in getting people to get angry or at least to like rousal up a conversation about it. So is this in the end just kind of, can it be written off as some type of like cheap marketing ploy, but nonetheless gets a lot of people angry? Or does this, is this separate from other developers, you know, hawking Italian villa style estates in Oklahoma or whatever, you know, that it's a completely otherworldly thing? Or is this somehow 
new or novel? It's neither new or novel. It is a complete marketing ploy. <laughs> I mean, and it gets those, you know what, people who who like to think that, you know, by getting their bodies embellished with all these tattoos and have a long beard and drive around these ridiculous expensive motorcycles, that's who it's going to go to. It's the guys who go to John Varvados and buy those really, I mean, they're great clothing. I, don't get me wrong. But they go there and they think that they're part of some culture when the actuality is, is they don't really ride a Harley Davidson to Sturgis. They tow it to Sturgis on the back of their, you know, their Range Rover and their like air cooled campers or whatever. I mean, you know, this is I, I really think it's a conversation to have on a, you know, and they, they're getting the conversation that they want. But the people who are going to buy it don't care about that stuff. I mean, it doesn't even reflect if it did reflect anything having to do with steampunk culture, the people that would normally pay two and a half million to $5 million for these, they're not going to buy this property. Yeah. Right. It's like, um, I used to own a 1968 MG and one of my former employers loved the idea of it. And then I drove it and him to a meeting in it once. And it, he was just so repulsed because it was old and dusty and, you know, the windows barely ro rolled down and all this. It, it was, um, yeah, he was like, okay, you just killed my dream of owning one of these old cars because there's a pretty vision here of a sort of some stately way of life that has nothing at all to do with the original style. So it's very funny. I find it very funny. I find the whole article very hilarious. I think one of the posters who said, uh, you know, it'd be great if, if uh, Matthew Barney could get together and do a, a Craymaster Punk condo. That would be pretty cool. I would live in a Craymaster condo. I would, I would <laughs> empty my, my life savings to live in a Matthew Barney designed complex. I would uh, uh, wait a minute. You've just, the, the, the door is but now I don't, open. I don't, Matthew I don't consider Matthew. Come join Brad Pitt and uh, Kareem Rashid and everyone else and be a, be an architect now. Well, Matthew on, Barney. Matthew. I mean, I wouldn't consider Matthew Barney steampunk though. Would you? I mean, I, no, 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 no. It, it, it would, oh, okay. it would definitely be no, interesting. He's something on his own. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he's entirely idiosyncratic. He is completely something no one else no. is. Yeah. So I don't know how fair it is to set up our conversation with Christopher Hawthorne this way, but on the other coast, <laughs> not in New York, in the other coast, we are um, today we have a special guest, Christopher Hawthorne, on to talk about a variety of things, including his career as an architecture critic, but also his recent articles for the LA Times um, about architecture and immigration. So I'm super excited to have him on and um, he's going to join us shortly. So you guys ready to talk to Christopher? Oh, yeah. Can't wait. Absolutely. Let's talk to him. So today we're going to talk with architecture critic for the Los Angeles Times, Christopher Hawthorne. He's going to join us as a guest in studio to talk specifically about a recent series of articles he's written um, around the concept of architecture and immigration in Southern California, particularly in Los Angeles, centered around a few key neighborhoods, and also just his work as an architecture critic in different types of media. So Christopher, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So maybe we could start out with just a little bit of context. When did you first start writing for the LA Times? I started 10 years ago this month, as a matter of fact. Um, actually, last month, November of 2004. And uh, I had been writing criticism for a number of other places, but um, this was my first official full-time critic position. So how was that transition coming to write about LA architecture in particular? You know, my mom... Spent much of her childhood in Southern California. I had a vague sense because of that, that I understood the place. And, and I had been writing a little bit for the New York Times from L.A. before I started working for the L.A. Times. But I quickly realized um, how little I knew about the place. And on top of that, how difficult L.A. can be to get to know. It actually has come to be one of my very favorite things about L.A. is how slippery it is and how illegible, how difficult to get to know it is. And the extent to which it doesn't present itself to newcomers as a kind of understandable landscape. And, and that can be difficult for somebody who's new in a city as I was. So I tried to be careful in the first, you know, a couple of years not to jump on too many soapboxes too quickly. And I really tried to get a sense of the city. Um, and I, as I mentioned, I, I understood, I think, pretty quickly that that was going to be a, you know, that would be a, a difficult task in some ways. I was helped by the fact that I was able to teach a class I was teaching at the journalism school at UC Berkeley before I took the job, and I had just launched a series of classes with Orville Schell, who was the dean at that point, who was really terrific, and he's a China expert, among other things. And they have a, an urban reporting program there that I was leading, and we hatched an idea to do a class each spring on a different city, and there's some money to take the students there during the term, and we 
had actually decided to do Shenzhen in China as a kind of instant city, study of the instant city. And just as I was putting together that syllabus, um, I got the job down here. And so I quickly changed the course um, to a course on LA as a way really to do all the reading that I knew I was going to have to do anyhow. So we read, you know, Karen McWilliams and Mike Davis and Rainer Bannum and all the kind of canonical texts. And that was really a way for me to get, you know, have a sense of having my feet under my ground, ground under my feet, excuse me, intellectually when I, you know, when I got here. So that helped. And in fact, I went back and forth for about a year. My wife had just, we just had our first child and my wife had a new relatively new job in San Francisco. So I actually went back and forth the first year on the job and, um, and spent weekends in the Bay area. Um, and I was able to teach, you know, finish teaching at, at Cal, but that was really an easy way to kind of figure out, um, what I needed to read and then quickly learn how much I didn't know. So it's been a pretty interesting decade to be working at a newspaper. How has your job evolved since 2004 when you started? It's been a roller coaster for sure. I mean, both in the newspaper business and then in architecture culture, let's say. In the first category, you know, the LA Times was, I think most people would agree it was, if not the best newspaper in the country for a couple of years around the time that I was hired, certainly the, among the most ambitious, probably the most ambitious. So we won five Pulitzers in 2004, the year I was hired. John Carroll was the editor-in-chief and Dean Bacay, who's now running the New York Times, was the number two. They were the two who hired me. Um, I think our Iraq coverage was the very best at that point. I think we had the best culture pages. I think our Washington Bureau was arguably the best in the country. So even though we were already owned by the Tribune Company, so the writing was on the wall to a certain extent, it was an incredibly heady moment to be joining a paper like that. And it's been quite a roller coaster. I think I've had five different publishers and as many editors-in-chief in, in that decade. So it's it's been, and it's, of course, in a more general sense, it's been a chaotic period for the newspaper business. And there's been a great deal of upheaval. Personally, for me, you know, I don't, the paper's been very supportive. They've given me both space to write and a lot of autonomy to figure out what I want to write about. And that combination is is really unusual. So I feel very lucky to have that and um, to be able to define the job in a relatively broad way. I write a lot about planning, a lot about transit, a lot about things that aren't kind of traditional subjects for architectural criticism. And, and my editors have been very supportive of that. And it's very different from my predecessor's approach. And so you know, there's been a lot of noise around the paper, even inside the paper in the in the business. But um, I feel very lucky to have had this position for all that time. So speaking from a position of a writer and critic, as opposed to publisher or from a business perspective, how how has the new media landscape affected your work as a as a writer? I think we're actually just at the beginning of of figuring out what criticism can do in some of these new platforms. But it's a very exciting time to be a writer and a critic. It's probably most exciting time to be a reader of criticism, of course, because as consumers, I mean, that's the story of this whole digital upheaval is it's a great time to be a consumer of any digital product. And it's not a great time to be someone trying to put together a business model to be producing that content, of course. But in terms of interaction and a sense of having a readership that's um, instant and also wider geographically, it's remarkable. So we have, you know, the I think critics have a broader and a more diverse readership than they've ever had. So And there are ways of reaching those people that don't involve just the print paper, of course. And so that makes it a terrific time to be doing criticism. Um, and, you know, I think the, the question is whether we can do... I think I think things like podcasts, in particular video, I think video is, remains to be kind of exploited as a platform for criticism, not just newspapers, but very few people have figured out how to do that. And architecture, theoretically, is a subject that really lends itself well or should lend itself well to that kind of treatment. And I think the outside of architecture, there are a few great examples of, you know, podcasts that kind of carry some criticism. And I think there's going to be just a lot more experimentation along those lines in the next couple of years. So Christopher, with this sort of broad audience you can reach now, both through traditional paper and media, my real question relates to who the actual audience is for architecture criticism. I mean, I think if you say the words architecture criticism to most people, they think it's about critiquing what a building looks like. You know, is it too big? Is it too red? Those kinds of things. But your columns and obviously a lot of other writers' columns are about 
when you read the comments to them, they tend to be draw a lot of commentary about politics and power and influence and who influences the built environment. I mean, I think there's always commenters that are lamenting anything that looks modern and they want to see traditional architecture. But it seems like a lot of the comments really are related to who the power players are that make the built world look the way it does. Do you think people are reading architecture criticism because they're interested in form or because they're interested in power and structure and culture? You know, my audience is is very diverse and very broad. So because I'm writing for, for a daily newspaper in a large metropolitan area, I have to assume that my readers have some interest in the subject, but perhaps not a lot of expertise or background in it. So my goal is always to express you know, try to express the complex ideas that are at the center of architecture in a really clear way, which doesn't mean diluting those ideas or dumbing them down. That's the challenge for anyone who's writing in the popular press is to try to express complicated ideas in in, in direct prose. So that's certainly my first goal, but I am writing for a number of different audiences. I'm, I'm writing for lay readers who don't bring a lot of interest or expertise in architecture to the subject. I'm also writing for architects and, and the, and the um, people who are working in the design world um, in Southern California and elsewhere. And so, but to the broader question, I, I think there, you know, I'm, I'm much more interested in, in politics and culture than form. So I'm always looking for stories that, uh, as I think the immigration series tried to do or able to make some draw some connections between architecture and culture because architecture after all is the one art form that, that has to deal this incredibly complicated range of of constituents and its own audience is incredibly broad and diverse in that same way when you think about people who encounter buildings may know something about architecture they may not but there's a kind of universal sense that people want to know more about the built environment I think and I think that's very true among our readers and so given the new media landscape, the drastically the huge audience, the diverse audience, and the incredible implications of writing about architecture, how do you balance this perspective of the authoritarian critic and also the wide audience reporter who's trying to be as present and topical as possible while also relating these concepts that might be a little far flung for, for folks? Yeah, you know, certainly the authority, there's no more built-in authority for critics anymore. Um, but I think that's a, I think that's a good thing. I mean, I think critics, we all have, we all can remember critics of an older generation who got very used to having certain authority just because they had a monopoly on a particular city. And that's obviously not true. There are a lot of people writing in a lot of different venues. Um, and I think it's, it's maybe not easy to get a mass audience, but if you're doing really good work, it's, it's not hard to get an audience and to get noticed. And there's so many ways, as we were talking about, to get your, your work out there. There's so many platforms now, even, even compared to when I was starting out 20 years ago, it's just remarkably different. I mean, I was like, you know, desperate. And when I was in my twenties to get in the New York times, I was living in New York and Herbert Mushop was the critic and he wasn't just the most you know, powerful architecture critic. He was for a time there. He was the most powerful critic at the paper and at the New York Times writing about any subject. And he was very territorial. So, you know, I try to sneak a piece into the house and home section and sometimes he would get wind of it and quash things that I was doing or other people, you know, were doing. And, and you know, there weren't that many outlets. We were, we're all just trying to, you know, fighting over the same space. I remember living in Brooklyn and basically all the young design writers lived within four or five blocks of each other who were in New York at that time. And all looking for places to publish. And it's changed so drastically in that time. There's so many more venues for people to get their work out if they're interested in doing this kind of work. There's not the same kind of stability, of course. A job like mine used to be come with quasi-tenure. I mean, you could expect to be in it for a long time and make a career out of it. And that's certainly not true. And that's true of almost, that's basically that shift has happened in, in every media job, almost. Um, so it's just a different landscape. I mean, I'm in, in, on balance, I'm really optimistic, actually, because I think there are a lot of um, ways to tell the various stories about architecture that need to be told. But it's also incredible flux. And you just have to be, you know, you have to be paying attention to that and thinking about what that means all the time. So then what was the core editorial push for working in a place like Slate pre-2004? How, how can you compare kind of that editorial direction to, uh, to now what you're doing at the LA Times? Yeah, I mean, those were really early days when I was writing for Slate. We were doing our own coding. Like we'd have to do, I mean, really basic HTML stuff, but still we would have to kind of do the formatting ourselves. And even then, even though the, that publication was trying to kind of chart some new territory, 
that was kind of an old fashioned publication in some ways. And, and the way I got my start there was through a kind of, I mean, almost journalistic hazing. They had this column called Today's Papers, which was incredibly popular that would summarize the national papers every morning. And this was pre or very early internet days. So, um, and the guy who started it would do it every weekday. And then on holidays and weekends, there was a, there were a bunch of freelancers who would do it. And that meant staying up basically all night and getting faxes from the Washington Post and the New York Times and USA Today and the LA Times and the Wall Street Journal of, you know, their A1, their front page for the next day, reading all those stories and then writing a kind of digest of um, the top news. And because I was on the East Coast at the time, it meant staying up, you know, I'd finish at four or five in the morning. And it was the way that they tested people. And you had no, you, those pieces were published without editing that we were doing this basic HTML stuff too, as I mentioned. So, you know, we would just kind of send it out into the void in the middle of the night. It was a terrifying thing to do as a young writer. And it was, it was a kind of trial by fire for people who wanted to get in the business. And, you know, I just don't, I don't, um, for better and for worse, those kinds of tests don't really exist to the same degree anymore. But I think the appeal for Slate was for me to, to think about what a digital publication meant at that point when it was still kind of a novel idea. And then also I did a lot of, you know, traditional critical essays, but I did a lot of slideshows too, which meant there was an early example of thinking about format and how to, how a different format would affect kind of critical take. So that would be writing very short, almost Twitter length, you know, tweet length captions to make, and then in aggregate, they would add up to a kind of critical essay, each one attached to an image. And I thought that was an, actually a very interesting test. The same way I think about Twitter as a kind of another constraint to make you think about how uh, to deliver a kind of critical message or point of view in a piece. And that was a great place to, to think about writing about architecture nationally and inter internationally. So I learned quite a bit doing it. I wasn't there for that long, but I learned a lot. Hi, Christopher. This is uh, Ken. Um, I just had a quick question for you, um, kind of leading to the immigration piece. Uh, can you talk about how you constructed this series? And when I, when I look at how it's laid out and I think about each piece individually, it seemed like Koreatown was really about the more commercial, uh, more public aspects. And Arcadia was more about the private portions of, of a community immigration in a community and then the, the last piece regarding uh, the Latino neighborhood, that it was like a combination of both. It was this kind of um, blurring the distinction between public and private and kind of looking at a community that, that tends to blur those distinctions. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The, you know, I've been, I've been thinking about doing a piece of some kind or pieces of some kind on architecture for a while and then started discussing with my editors last year, actually more than a year ago. And we batted around some ideas. We had a list of maybe a half dozen potential essays. The Arcadia one in particular is a story that I've been following a little bit. And then once I started kind of doing some work and research on the demographics, it really became clear that it would be a series not on immigration as much as on post-immigrant Los Angeles. And that's really what the series is about. Immigration peaked in, in LA County in about 1990, and it hasn't fallen off. It's plateaued basically, but the decades of heaviest immigration were 1970s and 1980s for various reasons, starting with um, loosening of federal uh, immigration rules in the, in the 1960s. And that really surprised me in a way because I'd read the basic statistics, which are that 36 or 37% of the population in LA County is foreign born, which is remarkably high. It's about three times the national average, but I didn't realize that there had been this shift toward kind of second generation or older immigrants. So because immigration peaked almost 25 years ago, we've really moved into this post-immigrant phase. The immigrants who are first generation who are here are much better settled and they're much better connected. They're more financially stable than they have been. Um, but even more than that, the city is, is navigating a shift toward being a kind of second generation immigrant city. So one of the statistics I used in this series is according to this USC demographic study, only 5% of the children in LA County are immigrants themselves, but 60% of them have at least one immigrant parent, which I just found a remarkable statistic, which kind of suggests that shift. So then I began thinking about stories that would tell that story. So I think each of them, I think you're right that they do talk about public and private. They're about different immigrant communities from different parts of the world certainly, but each of them tries to tell a story about this relationship among, you know, newer immigrants 
more settled immigrants or second generation immigrants and the and the city. So in the case of Koreatown, um, that's re- really became a story about an expanding neighborhood and preservation, its attitude toward historical architecture in Los Angeles over time. And the Arcadia story is really about these two architects. They're they're not licensed, so they're they're architectural designers, is how they market themselves. Um and they're not licensed because they they really see no reason to do it. They're so busy. They have so much work. They they don't really see the point of going through the licensing procedure. But they're one in his early 30s, one in his mid-50s. They're both immigrants themselves who have been here for, for a couple of decades. And they're designing houses that appeal to brand new immigrants or buyers from mainland China. So that's about that kind of negotiation. And then the Latino urbanism piece was... Something similar was about how the influence of Latino urbanism in immigrant communities, which is, of course, a kind of bottom-up, informal, ad hoc way of adapting to the city, has been around so long and has become so pervasive as the city itself becomes basically half Latino that it had begun to shape top-down planning in the city. So in each of the stories, I was looking for a way to talk about that shift without the headline in every story being post-immigrant LA, because it's a little, takes a little bit of time to explain that. But that's the kind of underlying theme is examining what that shift means for the city. So earlier in our conversation, you referred to the slipperiness of LA. And I think that's something that a lot of people identify with, um, particularly in architecture and urbanism conversations, but also just in general. And so, and if you're writing these pieces about trying to better understand the majority of population of, you know, of the Los Angeles and the, through these different immigrant populations, do you think the city seems less slippery to you now after doing these pieces? And how has it changed your idea of a concept of a local architecture versus a globalized or more diverse? Yeah, I mean, I'll answer the first part, the second part first. I mean, I think in general, I'm super interested in this question of regionalism at the moment and what it means in a, in a global architecture culture. So I'm really hoping that's something I can do more stories on the next couple of years. I think in the same way that, you know, when, when Frampton was writing about critical regionalism, there was a kind of reassessment about what regionalism meant. I think we need another uh, reassessment now. So I'm I'm super interested to, to to dive into that and also read what other people are writing on that subject. In terms of LA, I don't know. I'm I st- I'm still amazed at how slippery and complicated this place is. In the Arcadia story, in particular, as I said, I've been following it. My I have two daughters, and they have friends who are Chinese American who live in some live in Arcadia, some live in Alhambra, other places in the San Gabriel Valley, and so I'd kind of been seeing this change and hearing about it. But once I started reporting the piece, I realized how much more complicated it was than I realized, and. Because, you know, I think that as I've written a lot about in the last few years, I think L.A. is moving out of its really deeply privatized era. But this was such a privatized city that that's part of the slipperiness. And it is part of what makes the immigrant enclaves different here. I mean, if you ask food critics, for example, why the Chinese restaurants are so good, it's because it's you get an incredibly authentic kind of foreign food that just, you know, pops up in the San Gabriel Valley somewhere, as opposed to this kind of fusion idea or the melting pot idea. The geography of the city and the way it was privatized meant that immigrant populations could slip into parts of the Southern California geography almost intact in, in some ways. So I think the city maintains that illegibility in some ways. And then, of course, when you're talking about reporting on a different culture, there's a whole nother layer of complexity. So for me, it was very difficult to find people who would talk on the record for this story. There was a lot of reporting involved because a lot of this money is being moved out of, you know, the people who are moving it out of China aren't necessarily wanting to call attention to how they made the money, why they want to move it here. There's a lot of conspiracy theories about what that money represents. But with even without subscribing to those, there's just a lot of murkiness around, you know, around the kind of fortunes that are being made in China, as was true in this country when we were making our first a major capitalistic fortune. So People were reluctant to talk about it. The architects, the designers who were involved were reluctant because they have a pretty good thing going um, and they're, you know, they're reluctant to disrupt it. Um, So I think in general, I mean, I certainly feel as though I know the city a lot better than I did, but I think it continues to have that kind of elusive quality. And as I said, it's one of the things I really love about L.A., particularly the way it kind of sets traps for people. I mean, it's amazing how many writers, particularly from New York, but from elsewhere to come here and think, you know, after three months or six months that they not just understand the piece, but they want to write a piece about their, let's say, 
a kind of definitive view of Los Angeles as seen from, you know, the New York transplant. And LA is great at setting traps for a kind of a particularly lazy kind of writer who wants to write that kind of a piece without really taking the time to try to understand this city and how complex it is. So I love how it exacts that kind of revenge on people who think they understand it after spending very, I mean, there's something so strange about that when it comes to LA. People don't go to New York. I mean, I moved to New York in my twenties. I didn't wake up one morning when, after being there for six months and think, oh, I'm going to write a piece about what New York city means. (laughs) Somehow people come from New York and live here in LA for six months and wake up and think exactly that. And I don't know what it is about LA that, I mean, there is a kind of surface quality. So there's a certain layer of the city that seems to represent the whole. And I think as anybody who lives here knows, it really doesn't. So, but, but it does kind of glimmer on the surface in a way that suggests that it represents everything. So I, li- I like to watch that process unfold. Christopher, Ken again. I'm going to labor a little bit through this question, so please forgive me. I, I read your piece on Ferguson, and and I and I remember a little bit of the part of the piece in Koreatown refers to uh, the riots in 92. Um, one of the things that um, I'm wondering is that, do you see room for architecture to make a, a constructive difference? It seems that in these post-immigration communities, in, the, in these communities that, you, that you're writing about, there's room, there seems to be either room taken or, or room allowed for these kinds of, of very um, expansive expressions of their uniqueness. But in, in many cities and many communities of color where they're not immigrants to America, they were brought here, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of room in terms of um, that kind of uh, freedom of expression or even opportunity. Is there a place for architecture and urbanism to kind of affect that kind of change, do you think? Um, I'm super interested in these questions. You know, I, I wrote, going all the way back to my undergraduate years, I wrote my senior essay in college on um, spaces of political protest. And I focused on Sproul Plaza, UC Berkeley. I grew up in Berkeley, so that was a space that I knew well. And it was um, kind of new modernist um, plaza right across from Sproul Hall, the administration building. And that's where the free speech movement protests happened very soon after that plaza was completed. And then it became the space where all the Vietnam era protests. And it, when I was in high school at Berkeley High, that's where all the, you know, when we left school to do the, you know, to go to anti-apartheid protests, they were all in Sproul Plaza as well in the 80s. And so um, I've been very interested in that question, the intersection between protest and architecture, let's say protest and urban design. I think the, and that it was something that came up a lot when I was writing the pieces that I wrote on the boulevards, LA boulevards, a couple of years ago, in particular, the one that I wrote about Harbor Boulevard in Orange County, which was after a series of protests and riots about police shootings down there. So I, I think the you know, you ask whether it can make a difference. I think the main thing it can do is if, if the main thing we can do is to try to redefine streets and public space in a way that makes them open to that kind of possibility. So Los Angeles is infamous for not having traditional plazas and public squares like older cities. And in fact, there's a famous Charles Moore quote, I think from the 80s, when he says, you know, if, if Los Angeles, if Southern California were to have a revolution of the Latin American sort, that was his phrase, um, where would it take place? And he concludes that it would have to happen on the freeways. And in fact, the most interesting use of space politically in Los Angeles since I've been here, although there have been protests that spilled onto the freeways, has really been along streets themselves. And in that Harbor Boulevard piece, I talk about a confrontation between protesters who are moving south on Harbor toward Disneyland and this incredible police presence that was determined not to let them get there. And uh, there was this, at that intersection, which is right over the five, I think it's Harbor and Ball, just north of Disneyland. It's one of those huge Orange County intersections, you know, that's like 10 lanes in each direction. And because it had been emptied out of uh, car traffic because of this protest, there was this face-off between the protesters and the police. And it was almost as if the intersection turned into a kind of traditional public square. It had the it had the exact same dimensions as a kind of public plaza that we have in our mind's eye in a kind of traditional sense. So my point is that we have all of this this reservoir of public space that can be used politically along our streets and boulevards as long as we start thinking about those streets in a different way. I think we've thought of them in LA as could just as corridors to move car traffic and um, as efficiently as possible. So I think the the key, and this even goes back to what I wrote in that senior essay. I mean, I think the only conclusion I came to is that spaces work politically if they're not overdetermined. Um, that is, if they're open 
to the possibility, they, they kind of have the possibility of this kind of protest acknowledged or in mind in terms of design, but they're not, they're, they're, their edges are not overdetermined. So there, there's a kind of contingency that can happen and, and, and that has to be at the heart of, you know, where political protest is happening. So that's a long way of saying, I think there's been a, a real change in how people have talked about this. There's also been a, a debate about what digital culture would mean. And of course, the Arab Spring and other protests have suggested that there's actually a, a kind of complementary relationship between digital culture and, and street protest in the traditional sense. So I think it's something that architecture and criticism has started talking about again, which I think is a really productive thing. One thing that I've noticed over the uh, 17 years of, of running Archonnect is that almost every story has an architectural component. Have you ever had to drop a story about something that you've been passionate about because you haven't been able to find something architectural about it? I mean, do you ever approach a story, you know, um, from the other side and make it architectural? Or is it, is it always That's like- a really good question. I think with immigration, I did that a little bit. I wanted to write something about immigration and architecture. So I started with immigration rather than architecture and had to think I, that when I said I was going through these various ideas, I had to find stories that worked journalistically. So... I had to find a kind of architectural way of telling that story. but And that can be complicated and difficult sometimes, but I'm also most attracted to stories like that. So I think my mind works that way anyway. And being in LA, especially, you know, I think despite our reputation around the country, this is not, and this has changed even, even in the 10 years that I've been here. It's, you know, LA still has this reputation as a place where young architects go to build things and hasn't been that way in, you know, maybe 20 years. It's become a very expensive and I think more to the point, very regulated city. We've run out of empty land. You know, we've kind of run out of room to sprawl as well. And then the the recession on top of that and the crisis meant that it wasn't really possible, even if I'd wanted to, to write just about traditional architectural subjects as a critic. Like here's a new building by a prominent architect that I'm going to write about. And I certainly still do that. But there was so little getting built. And also I just, I'm interested in other topics. So I'm always thinking in a different way. I mean, I think the relationship between the Hollywood, the movie business and architecture in the city is really interesting. That's something I'd like to write more about. You know, I'm trying to think if there are ones, I'm sure there are uh, topics like that, that I haven't really been able to find a great way into or been able to kind of crack. But for the most part, because architecture does pervade everything and everything pervades architecture, you know, as long as you take the time to try to find a kind of narrative, a story that works. And there are a few things with the immigration series that just didn't pan out. You know, I think I would have liked to do more or a a larger variety of stories. I was super interested in trying to do something about, let's call it Hasidic pedestrianism and, you know, Pico Robertson, kind of the pedestrian culture of the Sabbath um, on the west side of L.A., there's four or five other things like that that I just never kind of got the right people or, you know, story to hang it on, if that makes sense. So there's always a little bit of trial and error from that point of view when you're trying to do something that's a little bit outside of kind of the traditional critical focus. Well, you've also taken your critical focus towards film. Um, I, read, I read a piece you wrote, I'm not sure exactly when it was published, but about L.A. Plays Itself, an interview with Tom Anderson, the director. And I mean, that film is explicitly about architecture and urbanism and the pre- and how those two are presented to a general population through film um, and how they complicate and exactly make those same traps that you were talking about earlier about talking about Los Angeles. But you also have a background working with film, is that correct? Or writing about film, is that correct? A little bit. I mean, I wrote some film criticism. I mean, early in my career, I, I finished college in 93 and I wanted to be writing about architecture all the time right away. But that recession was really bad for architecture and real estate. So there was just very little getting built. So I wrote like one architecture piece a year and I, I supported myself as a movie critic and a theater critic actually. And then the art as the arts editor for a, an alternative weekly paper, the East Bay Express um, in Oakland, Berkeley area. And um, yeah, so I wrote, I mean, I wrote some film criticism, but I don't, I wouldn't say I have a significant background in it at all. So I think you just solved a mystery uh, that, that has, uh, I think so. since in 2010, somebody in our discussion forum posted the question uh, of whether you're the same Christopher Hawthorne that, that uh, wrote Parents in 1989. No, that's not me. <laughs> I, I suspected you were too young for that, but uh, that would have been pretty cool because I love that movie. I, um, I have no screenwriting um, uh, credits as far as I know. But, okay, well, uh, yeah. the mystery is solved. <laughs> Well, 
thanks so much for coming in to talk to us today. You're and so congratulations yeah. on 10 years at the LA Times. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great. Thanks a lot for joining us. Okay. 10 years, 10 episodes. All right. Well, that was a great way to wrap up our 10th episode. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's nice to know that there are so many intelligent people out there that have an interest in design and architecture and um, can talk about it and write about it. You know, it, it, as he said, it impacts everything. Every aspect of life is impacted by architecture. So I'm glad there's people out there thinking about it. Yeah. And I'm glad to know that he's a rock at the LA Times. Having seen it change over the years, I think he's a really strong asset. I was like, I was doing a little bit of a tap dance when he talked about Jewish pedestrianism. I was, uh, you know, that he was thinking about that topic and I was just researching something about that today. So I was like, wow, this is really cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ken, why don't you, that article that you shared about Jewish pedestrianism, why don't you, that is loosely related to that. Let's uh, share that and we can put it in the show notes. Sure. That'd be great. I can yeah, definitely. I'll post that link. Cool. All right. Well, so that's it for the end of our 10th episode. As always, hit us up on Twitter. Arconnect sessions, hashtag email, connect at arconnect.com. Any questions, feedback, uh, greatly appreciated. Rate us and comment, give some feedback on iTunes. We'd love that. The more comments we get, the higher our podcast shows up in the list and more people listen and better for architecture. And also our number, again, 213-784-7421. Call and leave a message if you have any ideas or, or feedback about the podcast. We'll listen to them all and we'll maybe play them on the air. So thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks. It's always good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too. Until next week. Have a good week. Bye. 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 Bye.